We've all heard the value of positive thinking and aiming for happiness, but we don't often think about the value of sorrow, and rarely in the context of leadership. On this episode, Susan Cain returns to show us how embracing the full spectrum of who we are can help us live and lead just a bit better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 634. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I know so many of us think about the word happiness. We think about it for ourselves. We also think about it for the people we lead. We don't often think about the other side of the equation. And yet there is so much power in thinking about the full breadth of the human emotions that we experience and how we can do a better job at being able to see that full breadth inside not only of ourselves, but also inside of our organizations. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show, Susan Kane. She is the author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which spent seven years on the New York Times bestseller list and has been translated into 40 languages. It was named the number one best book of the year by Fast Company, which also named Susan one of its most creative people in business. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Her record-smashing TED Talk has been viewed over 30 million times and was named by Bill Gates as one of his all-time favorite talks. Susan has spoken at Microsoft, Google, the U.S. Treasury, the SEC, Harvard, Yale, West Point, and the U.S. Naval Academy. She received Harvard Law School's Celebration Award for Thought Leadership, the Toastmasters International Golden Gavel Award for Communication and Leadership, and was named one of the world's top 50 leadership and management experts by Inc. She is now also the author of the best-selling book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Susan, what a pleasure to have you back on the show. Dave, it is so much fun to be back here with you after all these years. After all these years, uh, we last talked in 2012, I think, and Quiet had just come out. What an incredible conversation you opened with Quiet for so many of us who identify as introverts and, of course, the people who work with them, support them, and love them. And I, 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 I was thinking about quiet, and then I got to thinking about one of the quotes that you highlight in the book. It says, before kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. And there's like, as you point out in the book, there's like 30,000 books on happiness and not so much on the other side on sorrow. And you worked on this book for a long time. And I'm curious, what prompted you to explore this topic? Well, I think I'm driven by my nature to explore the things that no one is talking about that we all know, or or we sort of know, but aren't quite there yet. Mm. And when it comes to emotions like sorrow and, and longing and grief and, and, and things like that, 
we really have been living in a culture that says we're not supposed to talk about those things, especially if we want to be, that the message goes, especially if we want to be functioning optimally, if we want to be, have, have our act together enough to be leaders in the first place or to be producers of any kind or just to be citizens. Like all the messaging out of the field of positive psychology is be optimistic and, and you shouldn't listen to sad songs and things like that, nothing that'll bring you down. And yet, and yet, I knew that that could not possibly make sense as a whole and full-bodied way of living. And, and you know this because if you look at all of art, all of literature, and, and pretty much every one of the world's religions, like they, they all talk about and contend with the role of sorrow in the human experience. And there's a sense too that that being able to engage with sorrow is what brings you to a richer form of happiness. So it's a it's a less glib, superficial, pasted on smile type of happiness. It's a much deeper one because it's a it's a happiness that's born out of knowing that the world is going to send you intense beauty and it's going to send you intense grief and everything in between. And what are you going to do with that? And how are you going to be whole and strong in the face of that? And that's really what I'm talking about. And, and, and I, I don't know how you can be a leader, especially in an age like ours, which is an inherently precarious age. I don't know how you can be a true leader without being able to acknowledge the full range of your own experience and those of everyone you lead. Yeah. And it, I was thinking about this, and it, you point out in the book that there is something that's interesting in true everywhere, but there's something that's really interesting about this from the culture of Americans in particular, that we have this espoused culture of positivity and lift yourself up by your bootstraps and put on a, a, a happy face and all of those things. And I, I, there's the tendency a lot of times when someone espouses sadness, sorrow, that we should fix them in in our organizations and like we don't have a lot of comfort with that in our culture do we no we don't have comfort with it this has very deep roots in our culture i mean it was actually fascinating for me as i was writing this book i i kind of went back in a time machine into 19th century america and and you see kind of the the roots of how all of this was born and there really was a period during the 19th century, where um, the, the psychologist Williams, William James noted that it was becoming unfashionable to even speak about bad weather. Like you, you couldn't say it was cloudy or raining outside or, oh, or, that, interesting. Was, or that you thought it was going to rain tomorrow because that would mark you as too gloomy a person. Hmm. Like you could only talk about the positive. And when Boy Scouts were instructed from an early age that they should whistle cheerfully because that would instill confidence. And of people. And, and of course, there's truth to that. I mean, we've all had that experience of maybe being in an uncertain or so-so mood ourselves, and then you find yourself in the company of somebody who's in a really buoyant, upbeat mood, and you feel elevated by it too. So, of course, there's, of, of course there's truth in that. But what happens when you're not allowed to talk about the fact that it's raining outside? Well, it means that you can't plan 
to have your picnic on one day instead of another day. It means that you can't bring an umbrella. You can't, you, you can't actually deal with the rain if you can't say that it's happening. And to strain this rain metaphor even just a little bit further, we've all had that experience when it's a rainy day and you kind of snuggle inside and play board games and sit by the fire and you become closer as a result. Well, similar things happen sometimes with sorrow if we let them. We've all had that experience too of you know a friend is going through a hard time and and you are there for them in a very open way. Well, now you come out of that crucible a thousand times closer than you went into it. And so when we say to when we say to each other, especially at work, that we're not allowed to go to that place, we're cutting off one of the strongest bridges that we have to actually connect us together. Indeed. And I, I think it's really interesting, like how we see some emotions show up much more consistently in the workplace and it's much more socially accepted. And I think about the distinction, especially that you paint in some of the research in the book between angry leaders and sad leaders, and also what it says about the power that they wield. And I'm wondering if you could maybe share a bit about that distinction, because we do see examples of angry, of anger in the workplace. Sadness, not so much. Right, right. Yeah, well, there are two different types of leadership power that that management theorists sometimes talk about. One of them is positional power, and then on the other hand is personal power. And positional power is the type of leader where people are very aware of that person's ability to get them hired or fired. You know, like you think of some of the the kings and queens in Game of Thrones, which I happen to be watching now with my 13-year-old. Mm. And um, you know, so it's a it's a very like moving around pieces on the chessboard. I have the power to elevate you or to topple you. That that's the message of positional power. And personal power is much more the way it sounds. The the people who work for a leader with personal power are more not so much a position of looking up in fear or respect, depending on the moment. It's it's more about being with that person, sympathizing with them, sharing their goals, sharing their vision. You're in it together. So these are very different styles of leadership. And when researchers have looked at well, what emotions sometimes go along with these different types of styles, you you see anger associated with positional power more often. And you see sadness, not always, but being more readily able to be expressed with the positional power mode. And these emotions of sadness or anger have their place at different times, right? There, There are times where a leader might need to display anger towards an aggressor or somebody who's threatening the the situation of their company. And then there are other times, like a common example would be if if the company is screwed up in some way, and maybe they've released a product that that has harmed someone or something like that. Well, a leader who can show appropriate and real sorrow at a moment like that can do a lot more for a company than one who's less comfortable showing up with those emotions. So to all of this, there is a time and a place. These are different skills, different styles, different strategies. But the key is to, to realize that we need to make more space for this other aspect of of human experience. Yeah. I'm hearing so much of a both and there. Yes. And and you you 
you point this out in the book too that it, there's there's some evidence that the person, the leader who can actually be comfortable in both places. Yet, yes, there's there's a time and a place for for anger and frustration, of course, and then there's a time and a place for sorrow and sadness, and and it's just it strikes me of like so much of what I perceive your work to be about, which is like let's look at the wholeness not only of ourselves but of the people around us and like how different we all are and how we can show up differently in different situations and i think like for whatever reason culturally the the cultures of our organizations i think often that we don't feel like we have the permission to do that it's not safe and it does start with leaders giving that permission and setting that tone that if th- those of us who have positions where we have influence in our organizations. If we're willing to explore that a bit more, we give others the permission to do that a bit better too. Yeah, that's right. And as you're saying that, what's coming to mind is is the name of a very specific leader who we could talk about named Rick Fox. Yeah. And uh, Rick Fox is this very charismatic, almost prophet-like leader, former leader of an oil rig off the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. He worked for Shell. And he's the subject of this famous Harvard Business School case study. And he's a fascinating guy. So he's working at this oil rig where the culture is extremely macho, gruff, never, you should never admit if you don't know how to do something. You should never admit if you've screwed up. You should certainly never admit if you're scared or anxious or sad. We're going through a hard time at home. Like all of that is not part of what's displayed. Okay. So Rick Fox finds himself in the situation where they're moving to a different oil rig. It's going to be twice the size, twice as dangerous. It's scary as hell for him because he needs to keep production up, but he also needs to keep everybody safe in this gargantuan and dangerous situation. And he starts talking to this consultant for help. And at first, he's talking about things like, how many oil rigs are we going to do? Like, he's talking about the technicalities. Yeah. And she says to him, forget all that. The issue is that you're scared and you don't know what to do. And and somehow, she persuades him to bring himself and his men to what was effectively therapy. It wasn't called that. But they they went through these sessions from morning till night for days on end, where they really kind of looked at everything, everything that was going on with their lives, everything that they were bringing with them to work, the good, the bad, the ugly, the sorrow, the joy, all of it. And they emerged from that process much stronger, not only emotionally, but it like, I mean, it showed up right away in terms of output and productivity. And the reason for that was that they had changed the culture such that it was now acceptable to say, I don't really know how to do this, or I think this way of doing things may not work, and we should see if we can find a safer way to do it, or a more effective way of doing it. Like They they had opened things up so that now people felt safe to take those conversational and emotional risks with each other. And that one change was incredibly impactful. But again, it wasn't a change of like, changing processes. It was changing acceptable emotions. As you were saying that, I was thinking, um, and I didn't make this connection until just now, but I was a Dale Carnegie instructor for many years. And, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And one of the 
things that Carnegie would invite instructors to do in classes was we would invite people to talk about their achievements early on. But then as we kept working with them over a course of weeks, we would talk more about sometimes some of the struggles and the sadder stories in in mm-hmm. folks' lives. And and it was always like people could decide if they wanted to share or not. But it was so interesting how when people would really dive into something that was a little bit more risky, like to a person, there would be just something really amazing about how that would free them and 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 open them up not only to their their own feelings and their emotions but also to others like to see how people would rally around them and i i just had that image of thinking about that as you were talking about the team on the oil rig of them opening up to each other and it's so in a way it's so counterintuitive we think like why would talking about sadness and sorrow and some of the melancholy things like why would that open up more joy and connection in a way and yet it does and i i I was struck i think like my favorite line in the book was this one you say we're often taught to focus on our strengths not weaknesses but we shouldn't confuse a bittersweet temperament or a negative emotional state such as sadness with weakness. What's the confusion we tend to make with that? Well, we assume that sadness, bittersweetness, melancholia, any of it is an incapacitating state. We associate it, whether consciously or not, with depression. And in fact, they're very different states. When you're in a state of depression, you feel kind of cut off and numb. When you're in a bittersweet state, you actually feel like intensely connected to everything around you. So there's a way in which, although they're kind of cousins of each other, they're they're almost opposites. And yet we don't realize that. But I'll tell you, we actually, when I say we, I, I collaborated with the scientists, Scott Barry Kaufman, and then David Yaden at, at Johns Hopkins. And we created this bittersweet scale that you could take to measure kind of where you tend to fall on this, what I think of as a bittersweet state of being, meaning a state of mind where, where you're aware of the way in which joy and sorrow and love and loss and all of this tend to go together. And you're aware of the intense beauty of the world and, and how all of that is connected. And anyway, we so we have this quiz and it's at the beginning of the book. You can take it. It just takes a couple minutes. And what we found is that people who score high on the bittersweet quiz also tend to score high on measures of creativity and of states of awe and wonder and spirituality. And that's not really surprising when you think about it, because to be in a bittersweet state means inherently that you are open to it all. You're open to the sorrow and you're open to the joy. You're open to the loss and you're open to the love. And that means you're open to the sunsets and to the impact of them. You go to the Grand Canyon and you're really open to it and you're taking it all in. And I think that gives a kind of clue as to what the downside is of an MO that says you're not supposed to take in or express sorrow, even when sorrow is justified. What that's really saying is you should be shut down in some way. You should be shut down to what's actually happening. And that that way actually lies tradition or or other 
maladaptive coping behaviors because if you can't take it all in in one way it's going to it's going to get to you somehow the only question is what expression is it going to take whereas if you grapple with these emotions in a healthy way you know what i always say is whatever pain you can't get rid of take that and make it your creative offering hmm. start a business with it make a painting like whatever it is for you that's that's where the creativity really comes from yeah from kind of that intersection of of sorrow and wonder that's the creative node for all of us yeah and what a beautiful way to think about that as an intersection and i was I was thinking about that and there's there's so many wonderful invitations you make to us in the book that helps us just to like step into this a little bit more and to like we were talking about earlier like it's not a either or it's a both and that the, the anger sadness like some of these the, the different emotions that tend to show up for us and one of the things that you invite us to do you you cite the work of James Pennebaker I hope I'm saying his name right I just how to do better with this and you say he found that the people who wrote about their troubles were markedly calmer and happier than those who described their sneakers or other everyday things. Months later, they were physically healthier with lower blood pressure and fewer doctor's visits. They had better relationships and more success at work. And it's just it's just interesting how being present to this and actually writing it down, it's, it's a step towards just seeing this in a fuller way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his studies are absolutely fascinating, partly because he's done so many of them that he, you kind of have to believe the results as unbelievable as they may seem. So in one of those studies, he looked at 50-something-year-old engineers who had been laid off from their jobs and were quite depressed about it. And he gave half of them notebooks in which to write about their true feelings and the other half notebooks in which to describe what they were wearing that day or what they ate for breakfast. And the ones who wrote about what they were truly experiencing we're not only doing better later on measures of physical and psychological health, but they were also more likely to have found work. And that was the only difference is that they had had that, that their instructions were to write down their truth as opposed to the other instructions, which were not. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. We're human. We need these kinds of outlets. We need these forms of expression. It's not, it's not meant to be stifled at length. Yeah. Well, and speaking of being human, one of the folks that you mentioned, the researchers you mentioned in the book is Dacher Keltner. And mm -hmm. and he's he was on the show a while back talking about the power paradox. And I just I love his work and his him pointing out to us that the more power we have, we tend to have a little bit less empathy. And like and I think that's a it's not a unique struggle for leaders, but it sure is something I think all of us need to be really present to. And you say in the book, we know from various studies that attitudes of superiority prevent us from reacting to others' sadness and even our own. And I think there's a there's a really strong invitation I hear to think about how we can lean into humility a bit as leaders and how we can do that better in order to certainly start with ourselves, but to be able to actually frame a place in a culture where it's okay to show up in a different way. And I was interested in some of the the advice on how to do that. And like, there's some ways to physically do that. And one of them is just bowing down. You talk about that in the book. Tell me about that. Yeah. 
So we know this from lots of studies that the position in which you arrange your body affects your emotional state. And and we've all had that experience. You force a smile on your face, let's say, because you're not, you need to. And, and, and just doing that can make you feel better at that moment in time. And, and so it's not surprising to think that the practice of bowing would also instill in you just through the physical gesture of it, a kind of humility and a kind of respect and even a kind of awe. And this is why it's practiced in so many religious traditions. For Americans who practice yoga, you're doing those bows all the time. And it does put you in a certain frame of mind. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting how just something that is, I mean, we know there's such a connection between our our physical and our emotional, but like how we position ourselves can can make a real big difference. And one of the other things that really struck me, I maybe this is because I, I have a, a practice of writing down each morning one thing I'm grateful for. And I I noticed that one of the invitations is to do a bit of a writing exercise in which you describe a time when someone showed us compassion or that we felt it for someone else. And I read that and I thought, huh. That I don't notice as much. I feel like I notice gratitude a lot. And I've actually, I have it on my task list to change up my morning prompt (laughs) to (laughs) now think about what's a time someone showed me compassion or that I felt it for someone else. And it seems like a really helpful way to get into a place of being present to this. Yeah. And I'll tell you, if you're someone listening right now and you're thinking, huh, I'm not really sure how I'd answer that question. Well, I would suggest you take like two or three minutes to go online and look at this video that went viral. It was put on by the Cleveland Clinic. And it was this video that was meant to instill empathy in their caregivers, but it ended up going viral because it's so amazing. And basically what it does is this, this video kind of takes you on a walk through the corridors of a hospital. But, but instead of just walking, you see these little captions underneath each person who you pass along the hallway. And the caption tells you what the person is invisibly going through. Mm. So one of them will be like going for the fifth, going for surgery for the fifth time, or there's this heartbreaking one that's under a little girl and it says, going to say goodbye to her father for the last time. Like I, I can't watch that one without crying. But the point is, that video is so powerful because it gives you a completely different way to walk through the world, which is go to the supermarket later and try to imagine what the captions are under the people who are buying their broccoli. And you're not going to know exactly what they are, but the act of realizing that the captions are there, you just can't see them, opens you up to realizing that these aren't just random shoppers. These are people with lives and dramas of their own. And it probably will cause you to pay at the cashier with an extra compassion, you know, like to, to notice the humanity of the person who, who who's helping you check out your your bags. It's just a very different way to go through the world. And it's such a powerful video. I recall seeing it whenever it went viral. I don't remember how long ago it was. And then I watched it again this week, having seen the reference in the book. And it does really invite you to look at the world in a different way. And to have that compassion for others and to enter into that place of humility. Totally. Yeah. 
one of the other invitations is self-compassion. And we talk a lot about personal leadership on the show, not not because leadership's about us, but if it starts with us, that we are able to do more for others. And one of the invitations you make is the importance of self-compassion in this process. Critical, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what? so first of all, you have to realize what the word compassion means is to suffer with someone. It, like, it literally means that come is with and then the passion is suffer. So to suffer with someone. And then you realize from the work of Dacher Keltner and people like that, that we actually are born to do that. It, this, it, this is not an unnatural act. When you see another being who's in a state of suffering, your your whole body, your nervous system reacts like the vagal, your, your, your vagal nerve, which is the biggest collection of nerves in your body, regulates your digestion and your breathing and your sex life and all the rest of everything that's fundamental to you. Your vagal nerve will also react when it sees another being in distress because we are just wired to do that. And we're wired to do it for ourselves as well. So instead of saying you shouldn't be feeling these things, you can try talking to yourself exactly the way you would if you were talking to your child who was crying over something that happened to them at school, let's say. Like, ask yourself, what tone of voice would you use? You know, what, what endearments would you use? What level of understanding would you give to this child? And why the heck are you any different? Yeah. We, we say things to ourselves that we would never say to anyone else, like with the language and the cruelty sometimes. And what a beautiful reminder to just start there. And, and that, that humility, that grace, that compassion, if we're doing that for ourselves, we're just so much more likely to be in a place where we do that for others. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, but, and it's also, the, I would say the converse is true. You know, if, if you are, let's say, around lots of kids who you are behaving that way with, it's actually not that far a step to do it for yourself if you just give yourself that nudge of saying that it's okay, because you're already in the accustomed habit of verbalizing your compassion, and you can verbalize it to yourself too. Well, and one beautiful reminder of that is, of course, to be reminded of this consistently. And I'd love to make an invitation for folks to do two things. One is to find the book, which we're going to, of course, link up to. But you also have started an email newsletter, and half a million people almost get it. Amazing. I'm going to link to it, and we'll put it in the weekly guide for everyone, too. If folks decide to join in with it, what would they expect from from your writing? Yeah. Um, so first of all, you can find it at susankane.net, which is my website. And it's so funny because I started this newsletter as just like a, a dutiful author. You're supposed to have a newsletter. So yeah, I just started right. one. And I found that I love doing it because just whatever's on my mind that week, I'll just write about it. And then people write back to me and it's become this really intense connection between my readers and me. So I cover everything. But I don't know, just as an example, this past week, I happened to be featured in the Wall Street Journal. They do this column where they interview a few thinkers, and the subject was inspiration. Oh, so they asked yeah, me where I, I find that. my inspiration. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Cool. So I, and, 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 and they did like a whole long interview with me, but the column is only 200 words. So my newsletter this week was all the other stuff that didn't make it into the column, uh. like my, my best ways of finding inspiration. But I, I, but I write about all different kinds of things, you know, from 
advice about creativity, to letting go, to just socializing authentically as an introvert, just whatever's on my mind that week. Beautiful. Well, we're going to link it up because, I mean, every time I get into your work, I'm just so grateful for how you just help us to show up in the fullness of ourselves. And I mean, the better job we do that in um, our work as leaders, the better we're going to do that for others too. And by the way, we're also going to link up a link for pre-ordering the paperback version of the books just about to come out, Bittersweet. And so a link in the episode notes and in the weekly guide for some early bonus items. So watch for that from Susan's team. So thank you so much for making that available to everyone. Susan Kane is the author of Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Susan, thank you so much for your work to make us whole. <laughs> thank you so much, Dave. So much fun to be here with you, and hopefully it won't be another 12 years before we're <laughs> back again. Indeed. If you just happen to be picking up this conversation the week that it airs, there's a link in the episode notes to order the new paperback version of Bittersweet and Susan sending folks a free book plate if you get there in the next week. Thank you to Susan and also the entire team for offering that to us. In addition, several related episodes I know you'll find helpful if this conversation was of interest to you. One of them is my last conversation with Susan here on the show back on episode 44, 11 years ago, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. During that conversation, Susan and I explored her best-selling book, Quiet, and how introverts show up in life, of course, and also in the workplace, and how those of us who have a preference for introversion can really think uh, in a proactive way of how we show up, how we use that as a strength. And it's been so exciting to see in the last decade, Susan leading the conversation on how we can do a better job of really embracing the full spectrum of personality in so many of our workplaces. Episode 44, a great starting point for that. I'd also recommend episode 254, Use Power for Good and Not Evil. Dacker Keltner was my guest on that episode. He's a professor at Berkeley, heads up the Greater Good Center, a fabulous work and research he's done. That conversation in particular a wonderful insight into the reality that as we gain more power in our organizations, we tend to have less empathy and how we can guard against that. We hit on that a little bit in this conversation, a lot more in that conversation with Dacker. Also, he's he and his work are featured prominently in the book, Bittersweet. So uh, a great compliment to this conversation for sure, episode 254 for that. And then finally, I couldn't possibly not recommend also the work of Susan David on episode 297, Four Steps to Get Unstuck and Embrace Change. Two reasons I'm thinking of that. One, the message about emotions and the full spectrum of them and how we handle them, or maybe we don't, from Susan in that conversation, really helpful. My favorite quote from her is, uh, emotions are data, not directions. Uh, a great compliment to this conversation. Also, Susan and Susan happen to be dear friends, as she talks about in Bittersweet. So I think it's a great compliment to that relationship as well. Episode 297 for that. All of those conversations you can find on the Coaching for Leaders 
com website. If you haven't set up your free membership, I'm inviting you to do that now. Go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership right on the front page there. As soon as you do, you're going to get access to the entire episode library that I've aired since 2011. All of the episode notes, all of my interview notes that are available, the weekly guide, which will come to you each week with all the relevant links, just like we'll be doing this week, and tons more inside of the free membership. Lots of free audio courses in there, too. All of it available for free. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, just takes a few seconds, and you'll be off and running with us on all of those benefits. And if that's you and you've been uh, utilizing the free membership for a bit, I'm inviting you also to consider Coaching for Leaders Plus. It's an opportunity for you to accelerate your learning more and receive additional benefits from Coaching for Leaders Plus. One of those is access to the recordings of our monthly expert chats. Uh, I invite a guest expert each month to join not just me, but actually our members to talk about relevant topics right now that'll be helpful to you in your work. We just most recently sat down with Jonathan Raymond, author of Good Authority, the creator of the Accountability Dial, and we did a follow-up conversation to the episode that aired earlier this year on how to align folks to a role. That recording is now part of our library of expert chats along with three years of dozens and dozens of other recordings. It's just one of the many benefits inside Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you'd like to find out more, just go over to coachingforleaders.plus for more details and we'll be off and running with you and supporting you with even more. Next week, I'm so glad to welcome back to the show Michael Bungay-Stanier, author of The Coaching Habit. He has a new book out and we're going to be talking about how we can do a better job of establishing and building relationships with peers. Join me for that conversation with Michael. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you back next Monday.